Welcome to Hope Leads. This is Wes Lane. You know, science tells us that hope is the single greatest determiner of human well-being. One way I pursue kindling and fanning hope within you, the listener, is by talking with men and women who are leaders from different generations, from different geographic areas, from different spheres of influence, but they all have one thing in common. They pursue Jesus and God's unique and purposeful journey for them on the earth. So, my hope is that these focused conversations might somehow serve you in a greater understanding of just who our awesome God is and his very purposeful desire and plan that you would live a life of meaning and impact. Well, recently I had the opportunity to watch the video of a speech given about a year ago by a friend of mine, and I found it fascinating. You might title it Confessions of a Former Addict Leader. And it was the CEO of Kimray Corporation's Thomas Hill's remarkable journey of what I would call workplace death and resurrection. I say fascinating because, first of all, it was not what we typically hear as being a form of addiction. Thomas gave a clear picture of how he had been directly or indirectly trained since a little boy to see his value as a human as being directly tied to his accomplishments. And like a drug addict, he needs or who needs more and more to get high. So it was with him that he needed more and more accomplishment to see himself as having value. In the end, of course, he crashed and burned. But what's so redemptive about his story is the comeback and what he and his company do to help others to not make the same mistakes that he did. Wow. Well, so like I said, my guest uh, is my friend Thomas Hill III, also known as T3, Welcome. Thank you, sir. I am honored and somewhat humbled to be here in your presence. Oh, so. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. Now, can we can we do a do over there? No, I'm just kidding. Just just kidding, Presley. No, listen. This this really is a lot of fun. And and I and I and I'm not joking. Um, Thomas, when I when I saw this and you were given a, a you were given a talk at at OBU, Oklahoma Baptist University yes. out in Shawnee and and um, I just went, "Wow, this is so Remarkable, but what, what but what really did just um, uh, gosh encourage me uh, and everything was was the redemptive story. I mean that is just so God hope. And yes, it was great. Yes, absolutely. Well, why don't we why don't we start and give a, a background before we go right into okay. that? Because because like I alluded to at the at the at the introduction piece there, there was a. A growing up piece. Yeah, absolutely. That was really pivotal on this. Absolutely. And I want to be really clear um, for your listeners that my father and my grandfather, both who are great men and have done amazing things uh, personally uh, for their company, for the city, and and even for the the world in many cases, uh, they're wonderful men. And what they did and who they were as I was growing up was was n- they were not intentionally right. steering me in a, in a wrong direction. They were simply leading and being the men that they had been taught and trained to be. My my grandfather uh, it was a genius. Yeah. He was a brilliant man that made him a little socially inept, like many geniuses, like many really really <laughs> smart right. creative people. Uh, but he and I spoke the same language, and so I got an opportunity to spend a lot of time with him when I was when I was little. I loved him dearly, and and really valued 
the opportunity to be with him and to watch him work and to watch him think and to see how he um, moved through a problem almost like a dance, um, looking for the the final, looking for the finish. And, and he taught me so much. I mean, I can't even begin to, to, you know, talk about all the things that I know and all the things that I'm capable of doing because my grandfather took the time uh, he never talked to me like I was a little kid, even when I was four or five, six years old, and I would stand behind his lathe in his shop and watch him machine parts. And he would he would talk to me and tell me what he was doing and why he was doing it and how he was making the measurement and why he made a cut first here and then did. I mean, he was just explaining to me what he was doing, and he never acted like I was a little kid. He assumed that if he just continued to explain things, I would understand them, and I valued that a lot. And then my father... I was a Marine, is a Marine. You're never not a Marine. You're never He's no not longer, a Marine. No I know that active, guy. But, um, <laughs> you know, a Marine. I grew up as, with a Marine as a, as a dad, a Marine and an engineer and an extremely driven and successful man. And, and between those two men, what I saw, not what they told me, they didn't go around saying I'm always right or I'm always this or I'm always that. But what it looked like to me was that they were always right. They always had a solution. In our family, nothing ever went unsolved. We could fix anything. We could build anything. We could solve anything. <laughs> my grandfather and my father were always in the lead. If they were at church, they were leading. If they were in a group, they were leading. If anything needed done, they were at the front. So they were always right. They always had a solution. And they, I never saw them afraid or emotional or uncertain. They never demonstrated to me that they didn't know what to do. And so that became the standard that I thought I was supposed to live up to as to be a man. Yeah. But the problem is, Wes, how many of us actually feel that way inside? We don't, right? I mean, that's not a reality. We are all uncertain. We all have fears. We all have moments or lots of moments when we don't know what to do or we don't know if we're right or wrong. So the internal feeling that I had as a young person against what I thought I was supposed to be created a lot of conflict, emotional conflict, and and really became shame for me. And, and we're not going to go into that. I, lots of people have written and done a lot better work on shame than I'll ever do. But if you know anything about shame, it's it's very damaging. And it also creates a need. If you don't know how to deal with that, if you don't know how to convert that shame and get rid of it, then you have to do something about it. You have to medicate yourself. So early on, I found out that when I accomplished things, I got credit for it. People patted me on the back. People said, oh, that's awesome. You're great. You're ahead. You know, I, first grade, I was reading at a third grade level. You get an award for that. You know, I like awards. I like, <laughs> you know, like winning. I like being, yeah, you know, getting yeah. the blue ribbon in the science fair, whatever it was. And I'm a firstborn. I'm type A. I'm a little obsessive or maybe a lot obsessive compulsive, and I don't sleep very much. And so I got really, really good at doing. In fact, my uh, my therapist says that that my role now is to learn how to be a human being instead of a human doing. <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm really God. good at the human That's doing That's a part. great way to put it, human being versus human doing. Absolutely. And so that was really the the beginning of a long road of relying on my accomplishments both to give me a sense of my own value, my own worth, because what I did was what I was. That was what I, how I felt or what I believed about myself. And also it, my accomplishments became part of a, a set of behaviors that I was using to medicate this internal disconnect, this shame, this internal emotional pain. 
And I got really good at ignoring my emotions. I became very unemotional um, just simply because that was what I had to do. Because if I got in touch with those things, then that created a lot of mm. pain I didn't want to deal with. And so, and I, and, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, think, well, you know, I deal with pain just fine. Well, I deal with physical pain. Great. I have the, the highest pain tolerance you probably will ever find. And it's not the same thing. Emotional pain drives us in very different ways than physical pain does. And so that was kind of the, that was kind of how I started out in life. And, and unfortunately for me, I was very good at doing, very good at accomplishing. And, and so that worked for a long time. Let me, let me ask you a quick question on the shame thing. Yeah. Because is that, uh, so shame is, uh, is, is something for which you feel like a sense of guilt, I guess, that you did something wrong. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and I, I mean, as opposed to... Guilt's a good thing, right? So if yeah. I do something wrong, I should feel guilty. And that should trigger me to correct yes. the wrong, right? Yes, yes. And so if I were to lie to you and tell you that I'm going to show up at your office at 1.30 for a meeting and I have no intention of doing that and I stand you up, I should feel guilty for that. Now, there are a lot of people in the world who are capable of doing some pretty horrific things and not feeling guilty. Sure. That's a whole nother science. But yeah. guilt is fine. Shame is not healthy guilt. Shame is when you feel that you are somehow bad or somehow wrong or somehow ah. messed up. It'd be shame is more an identity issue than it is a conscience. You know, you, we would hope that your conscience would be triggered when you do something wrong. But shame is often around things that you didn't do or that aren't wrong. There was nothing about how I felt internally that was wrong. In fact, I felt internally like almost everybody who's five or six or 10 or 17-year-old sure. feels. Yeah. I just thought it was wrong to feel that way. And so it made me feel like I was broken or wrong or messed up, and I was ashamed of that. I was ashamed of the fact that I couldn't internally be what I believed that the men be. in my life indicated I should be. Okay. That's actually that's very helpful because I, th I think a lot of people— I mean, you hear people talk about— um, that there, that it's almost like a shameless culture in some respects. I mean, there's this this idea that there is nothing. I'm uh, almost like I guess what's like a socio sociopathic world or something, right. a narcissist world or something. But that's a different story. Yeah, that's part of the problem with the English language is we use the same word for a lot of different nuances and different things. And I, I think when we talk about the the society around us being shameless uh -huh. in that they are not. Um, they have no modesty. And I don't mean that just in not bearing parts of your body. I mean, they have no modesty of behavior or speech or, or attitude or the way they treat people. There's, there's, no, uh, there's no politeness in, in our society today. That use of the word shame is different than the internal shame that a person has okay. that then creates that emotional turmoil for them and becomes a driver yes. uh, for what you do. Because what you believe you are, what you, what you believe impacts your actions yes. almost directly. We yes. act according to our beliefs. And so we can say whatever we want about what, you know. So for instance, growing up, high school, college, my career, even at the point that I'm president of our company, most of the people around me, in fact, all the people around me would have said about me that I was one of the most confident people they had ever met. The fact of the matter was that's not how I felt inside. I felt every day, in fact, I prior to 
me blowing up my life and, and getting into recovery, I woke up almost every morning panicked that that would be the day that I would fail to accomplish enough and everybody would realize I was a fake. Which, another, is, which is astonishing. Which is amazing, right? Because that's not how I presented. That's not what you would have seen on, on the outside. And so, yeah, so that that was the beginning. And unfortunately, like like anything else, when we are attempting to use substances or behaviors or anything um, to mask or to medicate an internal problem, that's only going to work partially, first and foremost, and then it won't keep working well, right? So if you're talking about drug addiction, what got somebody high enough for them to feel normal a month ago won't work now. And a month later, they're going to need to use more and more, which is why addiction is an inevitable escalation that finally leads to death, um, certainly in, in mm-hmm. substance abuse. And, mm-hmm. and I think in a lot of other types of addiction, the same kind of thing happens. And so I managed just fine for 40 plus years, right? I'm, uh, so it's, it's the... Uh, kind of the last couple of years leading up to the spring of 2012 um, was kind of my runaway in terms of things just got worse and worse and worse for me internally. But let me, let me back yeah. up just one second. Because I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, how on earth, if, if recognizing that what you had drawn internally as this is the standard of what it means to be a successful man, or, or however we might put that, you'd, you'd seen um, the accomplishment deal. How how do you do that every day? I mean, I mean, day after day after day, where you have every day the challenge of, do I feel like I uh, uh, is it just accomplished something? Yes. Well, unfortunately, Wes, I think that. Um, a lot of people who are currently listening to our voice are thinking to themselves, that's how I feel right now. I feel like I am running on a, a treadmill. That was what I was doing. I was running on a treadmill and someone else kept turning up the speed on the treadmill. And for a while, at the beginning, it was fine. I was capable of keeping up. In fact, it kind of was fun. You know, there was a little bit of excitement to that. Um, but eventually, you just have been running so hard for so long and it just keeps getting faster and faster and faster. We've all seen the videos, right? Or maybe you haven't. I don't know if you if you watch YouTube. Most people that do watch it won't admit that they do. <laughs> I will admit it. When I am when I've had a Only really sermons, of course. When I've had a really bad day and um, I'm just tired and I wanna not work. I wanna not think. I don't want to plan anything. I don't want to write something. I sit down in my leather chair in front of my big screen TV, and my TV is one of the smart ones, so I can get YouTube on my TV. I don't yep. need anything else, right? Yep. Yep. And I go to YouTube. This is probably going to blow. I mean, who knows? I may never be asked to speak anywhere again. <laughs> I watch car crash compilation videos, you know, on YouTube. What? Yeah, so you, the dash cams, you know, people yes, send in the video yes. of their dash cams, and they've, they their dash cam catches a car crash in front of them. You know, people running red lights and turning yes. left in front of people and things like that. I do. I do. Okay. So that may be a whole other uh, yeah, uh, uh, counseling. But uh, everybody uh, has seen a video at one point in their life or, or other where someone does something stupid on a treadmill. Yep. And the yep. treadmill spicks, 
you yep. know, spits yep. them off the back end. Yep. And for some reason, the treadmill is always up against a wall or a glass double door, or there's a glass table behind it, right? I mean, because that makes sense, right? Yeah, to put yep. your treadmill. Of course. So they go crashing through all this stuff. And that's what happened to me. That's what happened to my life. And and that treadmill had, had continued to speed up at a faster and faster clip in those last couple of years. And there's a lot there that we don't need to go into. But I had a lot of other trauma in my life that I never processed because no one taught me how. I didn't know how. Yeah. And I wasn't in touch with myself. I was masking all that. I was medicating all of that. And so finally... Things got bad enough that I really wasn't doing my job, um, and and I was doing a lot of other things, some of which were innocuous, except they were keeping me from focusing on work, and some of them weren't innocuous because again, I'm 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 keep pulling things in that just give me something to do and make me feel a, a way so that I don't have to feel the things that I would be feeling if I wasn't medicating myself. Um, so on May 25th of 2012, it was a Friday morning, I got called into the office and my father fired me from my job. I'd been, uh, I'd been officially worked at Kimray for 25 years and I was currently the president of the company. And so he Oof. fired me, um, removed me from the board and put me, they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't actually terminate my employment. They, they removed me as president, removed me from the board. But I ended up being fired also. And um, that was the end. That was the end of, end of my career. And the day before, I had, I had a heads up. I knew that it was coming and that, that the meeting was going to happen Friday morning. And one of the things that my dad had, had told me I should do is go talk to somebody and see if, you know, I could get help so that I could begin to stop doing all these things and start acting the way I was supposed to act. And so I, I literally walked into the counseling office at my church and the guy who was responsible for the whole counseling program at our church happened to be there and happened to not have anything on his schedule. And so I sat down and talked to him. I was not honest with him. I told him a little <laughs> bit of, of the things that I wanted to tell him about what was going on and told him what was probably going to happen the next morning. And, um, and he indicated that he would be more than happy to either meet with me or set up somebody to meet with me and that over time we could probably work through anything. I mean, that's what counselors do, what therapists do. Um, and, and then he said, um, he actually, actually offered to come to the meeting with me the next morning and talk to my father. And I said, well, that, that they're not going to want us to do that. And so he said, well, when you get out of the meeting, call me. And I said, okay. Now, you need to know something about me, Wes, which I, you already know, but I'm going to say it out loud because uh, your listeners are going to want to know this. And that is that for all of my faults, and they are many, legion, we might even say, um, <laughs> one of the things that you that that is true about me is if I tell you I will do something, I will do it. And you, you know that about yeah, me. Yeah. So I am reliable to yeah. a fault. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the things that people kind of count on me for. So tuck that away. I go home. I don't tell my wife what's going on. I know I'm getting fired the next morning. Oh and I my. also know that in the process of that, some things are going to come out that are going to be devastating to our family. And, yep. Yep. and I don't say anything. I pretend like everything's fine. Oh, I stay up man. all night trying to plan my way out, figure out a way that I can avoid the inevitable. And that doesn't happen. And so um, somewhere in the middle of the night, I... Uh, something clicks inside of me and I realize that, that really functionally my life is over and I get really calm. And so the next morning I go in uh, to 
the meeting and it takes about 15 minutes. I sign the papers and in my in my 25 year career in 15 minutes and I walk out the door and I uh, intended in that moment um, that that was probably it for me. And I'm driving down the road and I think to myself or that this thing pops into my head, hey, you told that guy that you'd call him. And I say, well, it's not gonna make any difference now. You know, there's no reason for me to do that. And the other, some other, I have two voices in my head. I'm having this uh-huh. argument inside my own head. And, and uh, no, you said you'd call him and, you know, you need to do that. And so eventually the, the one who, the, the voice who's telling me to call him wins. And so I call and uh, he answers the phone and I say, hey, it's me. And he goes, how does it go? And I said, exactly like I told you it would go. I'm done. They fired me. I'm off the board. I'm, you know, the whole nine yards. And he goes, well, why don't you come talk to me? And I'm like, again, I'm having this argument in my head that I don't want to go talk to this guy. Then this other voice in my head is like, well, you might as well go talk to him. It's not going to you know, hurt anything. And it's not going to make any difference if you wait an hour or whatever. And, you know, and so for some reason, I let this other voice in my head convince me that I should go talk to this guy. And so I agree. And I drive to his office. And it didn't take him very long to figure out where I was emotionally and mentally. And I just spent the whole day in, in his office and at the end, and about halfway through, we called my wife and she came up. And, Whew, um, boy, and so that it was a very difficult day. And, and, and I'm a complete disaster. I'm, I'm a mental and emotionally, I am, I don't know, I'm just wrecked. And um, well, your wife must have just been well, everybody, taken yeah, aback. Yeah, everybody's, everybody's. Um, yeah. And so at the end of all that, they decided, and Apparently, I was part of the decision. That's less of a memory for me. But um, we decided that it, that I needed to be somewhere for a while. Mm. And so by that night, it was a Friday. By Friday night, um, I had checked into an inpatient rehab facility. And I spent 67 days in rehab. Wow. Which was a horrible and yet amazing experience. <laughs> and nowadays, I say, I think everybody should go to rehab because... <laughs> If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have had an opportunity to work through yeah. um, so much stuff. We uncovered and 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 brought to the surface so many things that had happened to me as a young person, as a child, and as a young person, and as a teenager, and even in my marriage and my career. You know, a lot of us think of trauma as like we saw our parents murdered in front of us or something, right? No, trauma can be all kinds of things. And in fact, things that happen to us that an outside viewer might not even notice that something's going on for a person in that situation that can be trauma mm-hmm. for some reason it triggers something or it it causes something and what trauma does for us is it locks a part of us in at that moment so when trauma occurs and you're four years old, there's a piece of your development that stays stuck at four and stays stuck in that trauma. And, and that, that then impacts what you believe about yourself and who you are and how you behave and all the things you do. And so all of these pieces that are frozen in time have to be brought back out and, you know, not to overuse the analogy, but you kind of have to thaw them out. Yeah. And that's yeah. a mess, right? I mean, yeah. imagine if you were cleaning out a freezer full yeah. of stuff that had been there for 30 years, oh, you know, yeah. you're going to find some nasty stuff and yeah. thaw it out. It's even worse, but, but that's a really important process. And so I did that over two months because you're in therapy like seven or eight hours a day. Yes. There's no way to do that going to a therapist every two weeks, yeah. you know. I mean, that, I mean that's the focus. Life. There's just nothing else. Yeah. I mean, it really takes you off the merry-go-round. It really does. And, of course, I at that point, I had lost everything. I lost my job. 
thought I might lose my family. Um, you know, before I went into rehab, I, ca- I probably could have picked up the phone and called 600 different people in the city and they would have answered my call and taken a meeting. When I got back from rehab, I had four friends. Oh, that was it. Oh, oh. I had uh, oh I had lost a lot of influence and a lot of people did not want to see me. And uh, Well, that was a good way to kind of get an idea of... of uh, huh? Uh, where, where life is in the, in the, in the real world. You know, if you need to clean house, sometimes setting fire to the whole thing is the best thing to do. I yeah, guess. exactly I right. You got a little lot of I have a choice. I didn't have a choice. What do you say, um, Thomas, when, when you started off, you, you, you made a comment of, a few minutes ago saying that there are going to be some people listening right now that will recognize yes. some of what you're talking about. Absolutely. And so let's 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 touch on that just for a little bit, talking to to those people, and really let's underscore it because they, uh, although the people that don't want to hear it, they will have now clicked off. Uh, <laughs> but but it might be some things that they have loved ones as well that might be unaware. And are there signs that can be looked for, like a, a loving parent or loved one? As Absolutely. You've got a little kid or whatever mm-hmm. it is. That, Absolutely. You know, so first and foremost, addiction in any form. So so let's first of all, let's define addiction because unfortunately a lot of people misunderstand what's going on in addiction. So if you have someone that you care about who is addicted to alcohol or addicted to drugs, it may um, occur to you from time to time that you maybe you should just say, why don't you just stop? Why, why won't you just stop? Why won't you stop drinking? Why won't you stop taking drugs? Why won't you stop gambling? Why won't you stop? And what, what that fails to acknowledge is the inability of the addict to quit doing what they're doing because what they're doing equates to staying alive. Something happens in the base of our brains and the mechanism that normally warns us that we're in mortal danger and that we therefore need to flee or stand our ground and fight, right? The whole fight and flight thing. That's a, that's a pre-processing thing that goes on in your brain. So before the uh, intellectual part of your brain, the part that actually rationalizes and thinks and actually makes memories, before that gets the signal, that signal has been processed by a, a some people call it the lizard brain, um, which I don't necessarily like that term because it, it denotes that we evolved from lizards. And I don't believe that part, no, no, so no, that's no. okay. But at any rate, you have this base part of your brain that intercepts those signals and makes a flash call. It says, this is okay, send it on. Or it says, this is dangerous and we need to do, we, and, and it just, it throws you into that mode without you even thinking about it, right? So if a gunshot were to go off right now, all of us in the room would duck we wouldn't think about ducking. We wouldn't say, I wonder what that sound was. I wonder if I should do something. We mm-hmm. would respond instantly. That's what's happening in an addict's brain. And when they're threatened, and remember that threat can be emotional. It can be that they're feeling something that, they're, that they don't want to feel. Well, that has over time become a mortal danger. And their use of drugs or alcohol or behaviors, gambling or sex or whatever, has become the the thing that the base of their brain says is what they should re- do in response. So like ducking for a gunshot, I'm 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 in mortal danger because yep. I'm feeling yep. something that I don't want to feel and the base of my brain says take a drink. The base of my brain says buy something. The base of my brain says do something. Uh-huh. It's really very little control that we have over that and we can and when we're rational, we can say, I don't want to do that anymore. I shouldn't do that anymore. 
And every time the gunshot goes off, we, we do it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So the only thing that the only thing that really works is to uncover what's causing okay. that that fight or flight mode and resolve those issues so that they're no longer the triggers. You have to get to the point where you don't need to medicate yourself. So just choosing not to medicate yourself but not solving the problem, that's what we call, you know, uh, we call those dry drunks, right? They're not drinking, but they're not in recovery. Recovery is about changing how you view yourself, how you view the world, and uncovering and dealing with those things that have been causing you to need to medicate yourself so that you don't have to medicate yourself anymore. Well, how how would you tell? So that's where I was going. Uh So so that's what's going on, right? Uh Uh Now, unfortunately, for the people around us, when we're addicts, the people around us, what they see is we're exceptionally selfish because we are almost constantly in fight or flight mode, which means the only person we're worried about is ourselves. We are trying to take care of us. We are trying to not die. That's what our brain is telling us. So our behavior is very selfish. We're very self-centered, right? We think about ourselves. We do things for ourselves. So this whole time that I'm highly successful and I'm doing all these things, and I, and I tell people, I did a lot of good things, those were air quotes. I know this is not a visual medium, so you have to tell you your just we'll tell your air, quotes. air quotes. Yeah, I yep. did good things. Yeah, air so quotes, so-called good things. People yeah. saw them as good. My motivation was not good. My motivation was I needed to do that for my own, so that I had value. I was creating value for myself, and and my drive to do that was a drive that was based on an addictive need, not on my desire to help the community or to help somebody or to. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, but 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 drive and and I can absolutely understand that. It would be if if I think of Thomas at ten years old. What would your parents, if they were tuned in to something like that, would there be any clue? So, so, so to the to the to the mom listening in right now, and and who's who might not know that their son or daughter is is having that same kind of view of accomplishment as drug. What would be a clue that they could even tell that? Well, um, unreasonable competitiveness. You know, I don't lose or didn't used to. I don't mind losing okay. now, but I didn't lose. And um, and I would go to extremes to win. I would go to extremes to be the best. I would go to extremes. And then uh, kind of the flip of that is, if there's something that I'm fairly certain there's somebody else better at, you just avoid that stuff altogether. You don't com- you don't oh, go oh you, you don't, don't go compete you don't against go somebody give you a whooping. Yeah, if you know for certain that you're that you're going to get a beat down, then why would you why would you go there? So you pick things because it's pick, not going to feed anything. Yeah, you pick modes and and places so, that you can succeed. So what does unreasonable competitiveness look like? Um, yeah, just, just not having a, uh, a healthy sense of doing your best and being satisfied with it being your best. And unfortunately we didn't really talk about doing our best much. We talked about winning. We talked about, you know, salt, you know, (laughs) and, and the, and the business world, the, the world out just to the world in general reinforces that by the way. Sure. So, 
I don't want to lay too much blame at my parents' feet. The, the world, the world yes. says this to us all right, the time. Right, you have to right. smell a certain way, drive a certain car, look a certain way, have a certain job. Yeah. You, have to, you have to win, right? The, the world does not reward people who are just kind of in the background. You need to be doing something and accomplishing something, and you need to differentiate yourself, all of these things, which, which all of those things tell us that our value is associated with what we do. It is something we put on. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. So, yeah, I think the number one thing, if you're not dealing with substance abuse, substance abuse has its own signs and mm-hmm. symbols, and you can look right. those up. Yep, I don't need yep, to do that. Yep, That's yep. The, the data on that is so now, People talk about this all, that all the time. But you're talking about a really a different animal. It's a boy. But, but I would tell you that even substance abuse addicts have the same selfishness, the same secretiveness. Um, they, you know, the, the, the response when we can't, make ourselves feel better with what we're doing. We isolate. Uh Um, That's usually one of the first things we do is isolate. And so um, I spent a lot of time by myself um, working on things. And then I would kind of pop out, win the award, and then go back, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of deal. So um, I don't know if that helps anybody. Mm -hmm. Again, I think there's a a lot of data and a lot of stuff that's been written and a lot of research. Um, I'm not a therapist. I'm just a person in recovery well, that sees just, a therapist. You're a, yeah, well, you're you're a person who's been there and, yeah, and done yeah. that. And so I don't know if that if that was what you were looking for. No, yeah, well, helpful. yeah, because I because I think about it, I mean, the you see I, I just again as I think about young kids and and uh, and particularly you look at at it's such a comparison culture. Absolutely. You know, so and and if and, and so how do you be the victor in the midst of this this comparison culture and everything's yeah. looking at their photos and, and all that. I mean, what that just got to make a, I would just think that just makes a, uh, an environment that's just rife with this kind of. No, um, I, I, I think it is. I think, I think we see lots and lots of people and, and we haven't begun to reap. We're just beginning to reap the results of the social media culture um, when I was a teenager, there wasn't social media. Yeah, so, I mean, I yeah. can't even imagine what my life would have been like if I was on whatever they're on now, TikTok and Instagram and whatever. I'm not on any of them. And I, yeah. I, listen, I unashamedly will go on record as saying I think all social media is evil. <laughs> I think it's just horrible. Of course, YouTube crash uh, uh, videos are, are fortunately not social media, I guess. Well, you know, I, I didn't say that that I was perfect. <laughs> I just said I think that that— <laughs> Social media is a problem. I'm not. Uh, I'm not on any social media, and, and people. Yeah. I'll say that, and people go, "Well, yes, you are. I, I follow your Facebook account." Well, I have news for you. I have a Facebook account. I've never even opened it. Someone else does that for me. <laughs> so somebody manages That's my LinkedIn actually, and my yeah, Facebook yeah, and posts yeah. the things that we're doing and the podcasts and those kind of things. Which, by the way, can I shamelessly Please, plug I our was podcast? Please, shamelessly plug that word from the herd. And, and much like you, we are interested in promoting the positive. And so yeah. we talk to leaders who are successful in leading their organizations in healthy ways. And we talk about what that looks like, what they're actually doing, their experiences, their background, the things that happened to them, maybe in a job or under a leader that then changed the way that they view leadership. It's a lot of fun. And well, they're short, 30 minutes, and you can listen to them on the way to work. Well, and a word from the herd, H-E-R-D, mm-hmm. and, and a bison. You got yes, what? Is yes. it yes. Red or what? What was it? Yeah, What's Bud it? the Bison. Bud, Bud the Bud Bison. The Bud the Bison. The Bison is our is our 
a spirit animal, our mascot. R- real simply, the reason we like the bison is that bison, unlike a lot of other animals, and certainly unlike the rest of the bovines like cows and things, um, they have some unique behaviors. Uh, they're extremely large animals. Uh, full-grown male bison can weigh in excess of 2,000 pounds. And believe it or not, they can jump over a six-foot fence from a standing position. No, I didn't. Know I know that's that. pretty amazing. They can run over forty miles I can an hour. See deer doing that. So but not, not if you if you get in a, if you get in a field with a bison and you think you're far enough away or you have a fence you can get over to get away from him, you're wrong on both counts, right? <laughs> so people often think that bison are difficult to contain, and they can be, but they can be very easy or they're very content if they have three things: they need their basic needs met, right? So they need food and water. They need to feel safe. If they don't feel safe, if they're being harassed or, or if there's a predator in the area that's constantly harassing the herd, they'll move. And then they need community. A single bison, if you try to contain one bison, that bison will eventually find a way out because they're going to go look for other bison. They, they want to be in, in a herd. They want to be in community. And as we looked at that, as I looked at that, I thought, well, that's us. And as leaders, mm. when we have an, an organization or a community that we're leading, and, and we obviously want those people to stay. Like if you're an employer and if you're the CEO of a company, you want to retain the people that are in your company because it's very expensive to replace them. It's very expensive to have mm-hmm. people come and get trained and learn their jobs and you mm-hmm. invest in them and then they leave and you got to hire somebody else. And it's hard to hire people, getting harder every day. So if we are interested in retention, then it would behoove us no pun intended, the little hoof thing there I got in there. But, uh-uh. Yeah. It, 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 it's in our best interest to think about what it is that makes people want to be somewhere. And people need the same thing. They need their basic needs met. I am a proponent for a living wage. I am not a proponent for a national minimum wage because I think that's silly. But I think that, that companies that have jobs that are functionally full-time jobs that mm-hmm. adults with families should work at mm-hmm. should pay a wage that allows those people to take care of their families and do the things that they need to do. So we need to meet their needs. They need to be safe. We're really good at physical safety. We have a national, you know, governmental organization that will come in and shut your company down if you're doing unsafe things. We've gotten pretty good. People don't die routinely on their jobs like they used to do 200 years ago. But we're not great right now at at mental and emotional safety. There's a lot of mental and emotional abuse, abuse that goes on in the workforce. And so we really need to think about that. Think about people being safe at work. And then ultimately, people need community. And that's not just being in a pen with a bunch of other bodies. It's actually being part of a group, belonging. And people belong, people feel like they belong when they are missionally connected to one another. And so I believe it's the leader's responsibility to set a clear missional vision and communicate that in a lot of different ways and consistently so that people can find their place in that vision. And because of that, then they now have a reason to be together. It's just like when you go to a football game on Saturday in a stadium and it's your team and you're the home team and you're dressed in whatever color your team dresses in, and there's 80,000 other people there, 79,974 of which you have never met in your life, but they're all your best friends for four hours that Saturday, (laughs) right? Why? Because you're all missionally connected. It's your team. It's your home. It's your sacred ground. And you're there to root and and scream and yell. And you're all together and you feel 
like you're part of that, right? We need to create that kind of, of feeling in our communities, in our places of work, so that people can missionally connect there. And if they do that, then they're much less likely to jump over the fence and run away. And I think that's really important. Well, and, and of course, what you, you started touching on are some of those values that came in the aftermath of the road back. Yeah. So do you want to talk about that for yeah, a minute? I do. So I'm in, I'm in rehab. Um, if you haven't been to rehab, and some of the people listening to us will have, shout out to you guys and gals. Um, <laughs> Rehab's an interesting that. place. So yeah. I go from being the functionally the, the head of an organization. I have l- almost unlimited freedom. Nobody tracks me. Nobody. I can do whatever I want and go wherever I want. I've got money and freedom and <clears throat> cars and motorcycles. And, you know, I go from that to living in, I'm sharing a room. Um, with a with a shared bathroom with another addict and in a little I'm just gonna call it a compound because that's what it felt like <laughs> a very small amount of ground <clears throat> and yeah. buildings and I can't leave and I can't do what I want to do I have to get up when I'm told I have to eat when I'm told I have to go to you know the different types of, of sessions that we went to when I'm told um, it was a very very shaking to, yeah. to have that kind of transition so, um, a week after I got there, we were coming up on the weekend, and a guy who became a really good friend of mine, his name's Jacob, invited me to go to church with him. Now, this was very important because as a level one, you level up as you go through therapy. You start as one, and you're trying to get to three. You have to make it to three before you can be um, com- before you can complete. And, and you can check yourself out anytime. I was there voluntarily. I could have right, left any time, right. but I would not have completed my my yeah. my rehabilitation. So um, I'm level one. Jacob was a level three, and he invited me to church. The only way a level one can leave the compound is to go to church, and they have to be escorted by a level three. And the reason this was difficult was because if I screw up while I'm off the campus— they are going to hold Jacob accountable for that. Oh, and man. he's going to get de-leveled to level two. Oh, my god! So it's pretty That's very motivating. Un- it's pretty unusual yeah. for a level three to agree to take a level one off campus. A lot of times people that are level one don't get to leave until they've leveled up to level two. But my first full weekend there, Jacob offered to take me to church. Mm. And I took him up on it because I needed to get out of that place for a, a few minutes at least. Mm-hmm. I, I'd been there for nine days at that point, and I, that's the longest I had been in one place in 20 years. And they had coffee at church. And I was in a, even though I was not a substance addict, um, they they offered no substances that altered your mood. So no coffee, no oh caffeine, gosh, no, yeah, you know. yeah. So um, I was I was hankering for some freedom and for some coffee. So I was very excited to go to church. So we left early. And uh, I don't know if people are familiar kind of with the life church model. It wasn't a life church, but it was that kind of environment, um, kind of a, a coffee shop outside and then just a big auditorium with lights and, and you know, modern music inside. We sat out and drank coffee for a while, which was wonderful. And I'm still shell-shocked, so I'm kind of quiet and I'm just kind of sitting there and I'm not doing much. I'm just grateful to be in the open and to have a cup of coffee in front of me. And then it was time for church to start. So we go in and we sat uh, one row off of the back, second row from the back on the left-hand side of this large auditorium. And um, the minute the music started, um, I fell apart. I broke down. And and what caused that was something um, washed over me. 
And what I had been struggling with all that week, and in fact, what I've been struggling with all my life is that I felt internally like I was, um, like there was something irrevocably or irreparably wrong with me. Like I was uniquely a disaster inside. And I had just lived with that my whole life. And some of the things that I had done and the person that I had become I didn't see that anyone would ever accept me. That was one of the problems is, is that, you know, a lot of this stuff's going to come out and mm-hmm. people are going to know what I've been struggling with and and that's it. They're never going to speak to me. I'm, you yeah, know, you're a big fraud. And so, you know, that was what I was dealing with. And all just all of a sudden, I got this physical and emotional sense that I was accepted that I was okay. Mm. I'm sorry, this makes me emotional. And um, I didn't understand it at the time. I have come to realize that for the first time in 47 years, and I was raised in church, I taught adult Sunday school for 15 years before I went away. I've read the Bible straight through a dozen times. I'm, you know, I'm a data junkie. So if I'm doing something, I'm going to know more about it than the people around me, because that was part of my part of my deal. For the first time in 47 years, I experienced grace. So oh, pure my. and simple. And I mean, that's just what it was for me. So here I am in the back of church, everybody's singing. I'm sobbing. I am like, I am weeping. And Jacob is sitting next to me. He is so cool. He's patting me on the back going, let it out, dude. It's cool, man. And uh, <laughs> so I cry all during the songs, which is not too big of a deal because the music's loud and the lights uh, are off uh, and everybody else is singing. Nobody knows. But then they stop singing and the guy starts preaching and I'm still crying. And I sobbed through the entire service, Wes, the entire service. And uh, I don't remember what the sermon was about, but I remember thinking the guy was talking to me. Anyway, I was blessed to be able to go to church every weekend that I was in rehab. And toward the end, I got the blessing of taking other people to church with Uh me. Um, and I had the same reaction in church. And quite frankly, Wes, I still cry in church. I almost always cry during worship. There is something about um, like acknowledging that yeah. I'm in the presence of God with other people. Yeah. And I mean, it just makes me emotional. So, And of course, grace, <laughs> to the, if you don't know what grace is biblically, it's a, it's a biblical term. Yes. But it's, it's the unmerited favor. It's, it's just the... It's the love of God poured out, and you didn't have to do Amen. a darn thing. All my life, I had been trying to earn yes. everything that I had, yes. and I had failed ultimately. I was in rehab. I had lost my job. I thought I was losing my family. I'd lost everything. I could have lost my life. And in a moment, I experienced feeling, which was important for me yeah. because I didn't— I didn't need it intellectually. Yeah. I needed to. I needed to feel yeah, yeah. something that I had never felt before, which was, I, you know, the lot. Of, there's a lot of words: forgiveness, acceptance, you know, love. I felt that, and it wasn't like anybody said anything to me. Anybody was standing there. I, I, I can't describe it. I just know what it felt like, and I know I still feel it, and it changed everything. And so that then set the stage for. I was lucky enough. I didn't go to a Christian rehab per se. I just went to a place that deals with all kinds of addiction. Mm -hmm. I was in therapy with drug addicts and sex addicts and 
alcoholics and um, and people with eating disorders. I mean, there was a whole bunch of us that were just a mess, right? We had all mm-hmm. these different things we were we were dealing with. And um, but my case manager, my primary counselor, was a Christian mm-hmm. who was a recovering drug addict. He had found himself many years before in the rain on a cold day in Dallas. Um, looking for something to eat in a dumpster behind a restaurant and realized that if he went a few more days, he was going to be dead. That was going to be his life. And so he got clean and got sober and decided he wanted to spend his life helping people like me, like himself. Mm-hmm. So luckily enough, he was a Christian. And, and over those 67 days, we explored all the to- all the places in my childhood and in my life where I had taken on things that had shaped my belief system to where I finally got to the point where I believed the things that I did, that my value was associated with my accomplishment, that I was trying to earn the things that, you know, all this. And we converted that or exchanged that. I exchanged that for something that's really simple. I mean, this is what's wonderful. The, the, as an engineer, I should have known this, right? The, the best mm-hmm. solutions are the simplest solutions, right? Yeah. Einstein said, when you can't take anything else away, that's the best solution, right? When that, when it's everything that's there has to be there. And, and the belief system that I discovered and, and took for my own is very simple. We are all intrinsically and equally valuable. My value is internal. It's not something I put on. My value existed the day I was born and it will carry through and past my death, and nothing I have done or will do will increase or decrease it, good or bad. I can't, doesn't matter how bad I am, my value doesn't go down, and doesn't matter how good I am, it doesn't go up. And it has nothing to do with my education or my accomplishments or anything else. Which is a biblical concept. It is a biblical concept. And and when I talk about it, I start there, and then depending upon my audience, I say, you know, I don't want to disappoint you, and I certainly don't want to detract from my, you know, being a great speaker, but I didn't make this up, right? Yeah, Jesus yeah, said, yeah, yeah. love God. And then he said, love everybody as much as you love yourself. Well, yeah. that's equal and intrinsic. We love those people not because they deserve to be loved, but because we're we're told that they that they deserve, they that, that their value, value yeah. um, warrants us loving them and that their value is equal to our value. You said one thing to Thomas that I thought was really interesting in that talk on that subject specifically. It was it was where your worldview being such that you only uh, that you believed your value was associated with accomplishment, therefore how you viewed other people. Absolutely. Well, was, so that's the that's the part that really messes leaders up, right? So if you have that as your belief, or even a portion of your belief, if at some level you think that you're creating your value because you're smart or educated or accomplished, you're a CEO, you make a million dollars a year, whatever, and that's what makes you valuable, then you automatically believe that about everybody else, which means— Wow, and that, and, what, a and pressure, what a pressure thing from, from up above there well, for the leader type. Unfortunately, that is functionally the American dream, right? You yeah. can be anything you want to be, yeah. And if you work hard enough, you can accomplish anything you want to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. So when you look at someone who doesn't have an accomplishment or they are struggling, what do you automatically assume about those people? They're, well, they're not working hard, hard enough. Yep, yep, if they would yep, try, yep. they could do it. If they wanted to, they could stop doing the negative things and they could start. And that's what we think about addicts. If yep. they would just stop, they could be like all the rest of us. Yep. And we don't acknowledge 
that the value of a human being isn't about what they do or where they are or what they have, that their value is intrinsic. And where they are and what they're doing may actually be impacted by things that they have no control over mm-hmm. and that they they are not. And, and quite frankly, Wes, that was what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus came into a society where people who were poor or hurt or sick or lame were looked down on mm-hmm. because everybody assumed they had done something wrong, wrong. and they deserved to be lame or poor, and that if you were living the right life, that you would be whole and you would be successful. And Jesus said, no, sometimes people are lame just because they're lame, and their value is the same as the person who who is wealthy. And so in our society, we tend to look at people who are, air quotes again, lame, because there's a lot of ways that we are lame, and say, ah, if they would just try harder, if they would be something. So as a leader— I would look around. I never said this out loud, but mm-hmm. think about it. If I believe that my value is based on my accomplishments, then I believe your value is based on your accomplishments. And do you think I thought you accomplished more than me? No, I'm the head of the organization. I'm going to work harder I'm than anybody dog, else, right? Yeah. And so I never went around saying, I think I'm more valuable than you, but that's the way I acted. So that's what that brings us to what I think is the most important thing. And, and if you want to talk about the vision I have now, what I'm doing with my life, yes, I love to talk about recovery but but quite frankly, there are people who are much better at sure, talking about sure. getting an addict into recovery than me. Yeah. What I want to talk to is I want to talk to leaders about the impact that their identity and belief system has on their leadership and the people that they're responsible for. There you go. So as a leader who believed that my value was based on my accomplishment, I create an environment where people are competing for value. It's something that you have to acquire. And anything that you have to acquire, there's a limited amount of. Most of the time to get it, I have to take it from somebody else, right? So money, that's what the stock market is based on, right? That's a competitive environment and competitive in a bad way. People are competing for something they weren't designed to compete for. And it creates um, a damage. It is a damaging place for people to live and work where they are striving for something you're not designed to strive for. Not only that, they're putting energy into making themselves valuable instead of putting their energy into making the team successful in the direction that the team wants to go, which is something a leader should be really interested in, right? How do I get my whole organization focused on accomplishing what we want to want to accomplish? Well, if everybody in the organization is first and foremost worried about whether or not they are achieving their own value, moving themselves up, in the eyes of everybody else. Well, are, are you are you saying then that so competition in and of itself isn't bad? It's the way it's framed. Yeah, I at, at Kimray, what we like to say is is we let ideas compete, but people don't compete. And the only way huh. that that's true is if your ideas are not your identity. If your idea is your identity, then your identity is competing, and that's okay. hazardous. Okay. So we people don't compete at Kimray. We're all equally valuable. We're not equal in terms of our responsibilities or our roles. We all have different giftings. We all have different education and different experiences, right? We're not the same. We're unique, mm-hmm. but we're equally valuable. We throw all the ideas on the table and let the, let the ideas fight it out. And at the end of the day, if person A's idea wins and person B's doesn't, person B doesn't isn't less valuable. Just that day, the other idea won. Well, the other idea was a better so, idea. So that, that right there had to be a challenge just to, uh, to 
how do you create an environment such that someone didn't have their identity all locked into yeah, uh, their brilliant idea? Because everybody's coming to us with their own thing, right? Yeah. And their own stuff. Yeah. So I'll be quick to say, I can't solve all those problems, right? I can't fix anybody. You, Wes, you can't fix anybody. I'm sorry, but you can't. What? You can't fix people. Um, God can, but I can't yeah, fix people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but it's a lot I can, easier, a lot less of a burden. Yeah, but I can yeah. provide an environment where it is more likely for them to see things a certain way than another way. And so, as well, a leader, this is what. And think is, about this at your home too. If you're anywhere, li- anywhere if you're, you're leading, wherever you are. So I like to use the word community and leader, right? Because yeah. everybody is a leader in some community. If yeah. It's a group of friends. If it's your family. It, at your church, mm-hmm. in your business, and you don't have to be the CEO to be a leader. Yeah. Um, I, I do tend to focus my time and effort on C-level leaders. Sure. That's who I can relate to. It's the corporate suite. They can relate yeah. to me. I can speak directly to them because I'm sitting in their chair and I understand what their life is like and it gives yeah. me a little, I have some moral authority to, to talk into what they're doing. But sure. nevertheless, a community's culture, the culture of a community is an organic result. That's a big word, just means it happens just because, I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's organic. It's just the, a natural The flow. culture of an organization flows from the belief system of the organization. So you, can't, you don't create it, the belief system creates it. Okay. The belief system of an organization is predominantly influenced by the leader. That makes total sense. So, as the leader goes, So if you've got a Darwinian culture... Goes, my, uh, survival of the fittest. Then that's what the leader believes. If the leader has it, then that flows that's on right. down. Everybody's, uh, you know, got their knives out. Yep. So what we did at Kim Ray. So back to my story. In rehab for 67 days, I come back. Never think I'm going back to Kim Ray. Some things happen. Some things change at Kim Ray. A year, almost a year goes by. And the board of directors, I start another company with a, a friend of mine. We're We've got big plans, and I'm okay. I've processed all that. And by the way, I'm still in therapy. I see a therapist every other week, probably for the first five or six years I saw her every week. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, highly, if you can't go to rehab, then you need a therapist. You need a therapist as much as you need a physical doctor. If you go get a checkup every once in a while, or if you call a doctor when you have a head cold, you need a therapist. Mm. Same difference for your mental and emotional health. So um, processed all that with my therapist. Never thought I'd come back to Camry. Board calls me and says, hey, would you be interested in talking about coming back to Camry? And interestingly enough, I didn't just say, yes, absolutely. I said, we can talk because going back into that environment Mm -hmm. could have been risky. And we had talked a lot about that in therapy. I actually had two pages of things that had to be true for it to be okay for me to be a part of Camry again. And I didn't think they would be true. So I sat down with the board, and it turns out they had made a lot of those changes, and the others were easy things for us to talk about and fix. And so I did. Almost a year after, I came back to Kim Ray. Uh-huh. Um, now, it would be a great story if I got reinstalled as CEO and said, I'm back, and we're going to do things different. But that's not what happened. They invited me back as the vice president of manufacturing, <laughs> which is a job I had had 15 years 15 before. 15 years before. And I was working for somebody I hired while I was the leader of Kim Pushing Ray. the reset button. So that was humbling, um, but also really, really healthy because mm-hmm. it gave me an opportunity to um, see how I would respond to the environment and to see if what had had become true about me mm-hmm. and my beliefs 
were going to continue to play out in how I led at, at a lower level. And so over a few years, uh, the board moved me uh, first into like a COO role to support my father who had stepped back in as a CEO. Mm-hmm. And then he wanted to step back out. And the board, after a lot of consideration, um, decided that I was the appropriate person to be CEO. So for about the last six years, I've been CEO. So what does that mean for Kimry? What does that mean for us? Well, first and foremost, um, we now, uh, if you ask anybody that works at Kimray what the culture of Kimray is, mm-hmm. they'll use different words. They all have their own way to say it. But what they will tell you is it's the only place they've ever worked where they really believe that we care about them. That like, mm. like that's the most mm-hmm. important thing to us is we care about them. Mm-hmm. And our mission at Kim Ray, which I helped develop, I mean, Kim Ray is 75 years old. It's not like we didn't know what we were doing or know what our roles were. And, and we had core values that were not well stated or maybe not everybody knew them. And so one of the first things I did as CEO is, is I got the team together, the management team together. And I said, we're, we're going to define these things, not in a way that we want, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to define them the way that they should be and the way that I think they are. And so our mission is to make a difference in the lives of the people that we serve. It doesn't have anything to do with making vows or being great customer service people or making profit. That's not why Kimray exists. Kimray doesn't exist to make a profit. It exists to make a difference. We make a profit in order to facilitate making a difference, and we need to be good at that. But there's a that's an important distinction. And then our core values of honoring the Lord and all we do, being responsible stewards, strengthening the family, and maintaining our good name. Again, those those define how we make decisions and how we that's a filter that everything goes through. But the most important part of what's true about Kimray is our core belief, our core corporate belief, which matches my core belief, which is what I already said. Everyone is equally and intrinsically valuable, and we are going to act that way. We're going to treat people with a lot of different words, respect, dignity, love, care. All of these things are ways that we demonstrate that we actually believe that everyone is equally valuable and and intrinsically valuable. So, So in the end, whether you are, whatever community um, the listener represents, whether it's the community of their company, the community of their family. Absolutely. Uh, the, you know, what, whatever that is, what you've just given a bit of a roadmap on is, is that what you first of all said is that the, the community culture, and there is one, all, yes. there always is one. Yes. That if you will bring it back to where the humans are valued, then that's the place to bring it to. And then everything everything else will flow. You'll you'll get rid of so much of the junk and and all of the the, the human angst and and all that sort of stuff because because you're getting back to what the Lord says about them in the first place is that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I will be quick to say we are not perfect. So when I speak to the people who are being onboarded at Kimray, first I tell them a very brief version of what I just oh, told yeah. you. Yep, this yep, is what we believe. Yep, yep. This is why Kimray is different and why it's special. And they go, sure, sure. And, and then, then they, I say— then they, then they bring their junk. Yeah, and then I say, and there's 650 people here. Mm-hmm. And if you're here more than two weeks, I guarantee you someone's going to say or do something that offends or hurts your feelings, right? That's going to happen. <laughs> the difference is that at Kimray, because we are, as a, as a community— we are assuming 
that everyone believes what we say we believe. And if everybody believes that we're all equally intrinsically valuable and we are committed to caring for one another, then when I do something that is offensive to you, it was not intentional. I'm not trying to hurt you. I may not be working hard to not hurt you. I may be being lazy, but I'm not I'm going to assume sure. that the people around me are not intentionally right. trying to hurt me. Yeah. And so that frees me to go to them and say, what happened? Yeah. What you said, what you did, that creates a problem for me. And that person hopefully will say, I had no idea. I was not my, I was not trying to hurt your feelings and I'll be more careful. I'll try not to do that again. And it's that simple. What if that was what was going on in our communities? And, and by the way, by the way, we don't agree on everything at Kimray, right? I have a very yeah, diverse yeah. population, men and women, you know, different colors, different yeah. backgrounds, different belief systems. Yeah. You don't have to be a white male Christian to work at Kimray. In right. fact, I'd like to have a lot less white male, you know, people. We have all kinds of people. They don't agree on everything. We got OSU fans and OU fans. We don't agree on things, right? And we don't, I don't have a problem with people talking about things as long as they're respectful. I don't have a problem with people discussing what they believe or what they feel as long as they treat the people around them equally valuable through respect and dignity. And so it's not about agreement. It's about respect. We can disagree and still live in community. We can disagree and still care for each other. We can disagree and still be unified Everybody at Camry is unified in our mission. We are going to make people's lives better. We're going to start with our own people, and then we're going to do it in Oklahoma City, and then we're going to do it in the bigger community. That's what we do, and we do it every day, and they're all involved in it. They're all connected to that mission, and they come from all different kinds of backgrounds. Well, what, uh, uh, well, Thomas and, and Matt, just, and I'll wrap it up with this, because as you were talking, just at that end, I had a flashback moment, and it was to 2009, and you were in the very first SALT class. And we had a conversation one day, not you and I, but the group. And we had a lot of business people in that group. And the idea and the thought was, what does it look like when we leverage our influence as business people, as as company owners, and there were several pretty solid uh, companies there, what does it look like if as companies we make a new normal, a new cultural expectation? Well, we don't know what you do in New York, or you know, but if you're in Oklahoma City, this is the way companies operate. And these are based and the value system that you just talked about. Right. And so what's what's exciting to me is, is that that is the that's the cry of the heart out there. And that's what's imminently doing uh, doable and, and what you're doing right now, because I know you guys are very overt in the community, big time. We so, are. So that that is 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 the the follow through of what does it look like and what you guys do and what other guys, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Well, it becomes impossible to do business in other companies that are treating you less than human value. Yeah. So- well, Thomas, this is... Yeah, th- and by the way, if people want more information, I feel strongly enough about this that we started a foundation and we're investing heavily in time and resources to um, basically building a community, building a herd of leaders who want this for their organizations and for their people. So it's the Kimmel Foundation for Recovering Leadership. Spell that, Kimmel. Kimmel, K-I-M-M-E-L-L, two M's and two L's. My grandfather was a, a German immigrant. So... Um, <laughs> 
And uh, you can find us at thekimmelfdn.org. Again, M-M-E-L-L-F-D-N.org. And you can Google, and I've done this, Google Kimmel Foundation, and yeah. that's going to get it. Now, spell there's it another, right. You yeah. just got to spell it right. right. Otherwise, it's going to take you off to some other foundation. Right, there's another the foundation group. with a different spelling. But yes, right. K-I-M-M-E-L-L Foundation, and you'll find us. And, and uh, we have resources. We have the podcast. We've got... Um, I don't know when people are going to hear this this podcast, but we have an annual conference that we do, and, and we'd love people to come to that. So um, we want to help, and we'd love to, I love to sit down with leaders or speak to groups and and talk about these things. See what uh, Thomas, what this has been a great example of in the kingdom of God, God's always redemptive. Amen. And your story is the utter redemptive God story. And this is, he makes all things new with everyone. And so thanks for sharing it, Thomas. I really appreciate you. It's been my Proud pleasure. Proud of you. Thank you. Wow. So uh, thanks, thanks very much. And, and for all the rest of you, we'll, we'll see you next time. So let me give you some concluding thoughts. If Hope were a person in the room, what would she say to us? Well, I think, first of all, she'd say that you are fearfully and wonderfully made that an unchanging God designed, built you, and sent you into a moment of history as part of his loving strategy to transform a chaotic world and, and make it good again. You are called as change agents. Hope would tell you that she flourishes when we listen to God and set goals for our lives that press us further toward becoming that person God has always been willing for us to become. Hope would tell you to set action steps towards achieving those goals. They don't have to be giant steps. Start with baby steps so you can be encouraged along the way. But hope would also tell you that you've got to not just make plans to step, but you must exercise the willpower to just take that next right step. Step by step by step gets you to the destination God has for your life. It's the long obedience in the same direction. And finally, hope would tell you that God sees us not as we are, but as we could become if we will dare. It's the same for our communities. As followers of Jesus, you are a sent people and all humans should flourish because God's kids are in town. What evil thing dies because you exist? No one else is coming. You're the generation sent to your community in this moment. You're it. Press into God's purposes for your lives, and you will discover that hope abounds and that Jesus is still the God of the impossible. Thank you for joining us today on Hope Leads. I'm Wes Lane. Once again, I'd be honored if you would take a moment to rate this podcast, review it, subscribe, and share it with someone who needs hope. We want to thank Brianna Gaither for the song, I Won't Rest Until, from her album, Vanity. Remember, you are fearfully and wonderfully made by a God who is willing for us to live meaningful lives of profound impact. I invite you to just show up and watch God show off. 